It's the final issue of Daredevil's origin story from the pen of Frank Miller. Get ready for some action-packed awesomeness on the 14th episode of Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Welcome to another episode of Dave's Daredevil Podcast, and the first for the month of February 2014, which means spring isn't far away, folks. Only a few more weeks till daylight savings time. I, for those that don't know, am Dave, as indicated by the title of the show, also known as J. David Weeder. This week, we wrap up the final installment of the Frank Miller origin tale, Daredevil, The Man Without Fear, with an action-packed issue. And by that, I mean we essentially have a lot of action because we're at the climax of the tale, so the third act kind of entails a lot of conflict. Before we jump into that, let me wish my wife a happy birthday over the air, even if it's a little bit earlier. Uh, later this week, we're going to be celebrating her birthday by seeing Pentatonix, which is a vocal group. Vocal as in they make all the music with their vocals, their mouths. So beatboxes, harmonies, that's how they form their music. No instruments at all. That made me wonder what an experience something like that would be for Matt Murdock. I mean, we can get lost in the sounds, how they mix to actually sound like musical instruments, but Matt can hear on a whole other level. I don't know that the sounds would mix right, and Matt would hear small respiratory movements, tiny throat noises, nasal noises, things like that. Now mix in the crowd's noises and the echoes of most venues, and the concert experience kind of turns into a crappy thing. Now, I'm sure Matt could filter out some of the noises and focus it, but he would be spending most of his time doing that instead of actually enjoying himself. Then again, I could say the same thing about Matt listening to podcasts. He would probably hear every editing goof that I make, like cutting out the coughing from episode 12 when I had the cold. That makes me really, really self-conscious. Luckily, I can enjoy the concert and the night out with the love of my life and celebrate the day she came into this world, which I do celebrate because she's my favorite thing in this world. But enough sappy stuff, let's get down to the business of Matt Murdock kicking butt and taking names, namely the name Daredevil. To catch us back up from last week, Kingpin has risen to power, and through a chain of events kidnapped Matt's young friend Mickey. Matt, knowing that Mickey's life is at stake, has tracked the Kingpin's goons down to a dockside warehouse and is about to unleash his full assault to save his friend. And that is where we pick up with Man Without Fear number 5, which is right after this podcast promo break. His name is Oliver Queen. For five years, he was stranded on an island with only one goal. Podcast. I mean, survive. Now he will fulfill his father's dying wish and bring down those who are poisoning his city. My name is Reese Parton. And I am Lee Busby. I am Dean Hill. And my name is Sandra J.F. And we are The Undertaking. Like most criminal organizations in comics nowadays, we have turned good and we plan to tackle one episode of the new season of Arrow each week. 
join the undertaking at the undertaking podcast.podomatic.com or on facebook at facebook.com forward slash arrow the undertaking and also on itunes Welcome back. You know, when I took a look at the cover month of February 1994, I took a little trip back in time. I discovered something interesting. See, it was the same month that DC released some gems, such as Paul Dini's Batman Mad Love and the color form cover to Superman Man of Steel number 30. Looking at the Marvel side, it put some pieces together and I realized that this was coming out as I was getting ready to leave comics. The joy had gone out of them. I had begun dating, so I was leaving the collecting hobby. A lot of other things had my attention. The X-Men books were the first to go, and I had a plan. I was waiting for storylines to hit a stopping point, which conveniently happened with the March 1994 cover date. It was kind of a sad time for me, in a way, because it was mournful. I just wasn't having as much fun as I used to in comics, and I think the very minimal reading I did across the next five years reinforced that. I mean, to say I left comics is a bit misleading. I kept one foot in the game. A lot of times I would read Wizard fairly consistently, so I knew what was going on. I would check out a miniseries short run here and there. This is how I read the Carl Kiesel run and fell back in love with Daredevil. But it was a while before I was back to the month-to-month grind. Not until 2000 when I got back into Superman and then X-Men and then a little book written by David Mack called Daredevil. I had heard rumblings of how the book was burning hot thanks to the Kevin Smith revival and how Mac was really keeping the book on the cutting edge, so I peeked at the book. I borrowed my roommate's back issues to see if the hype on the Guardian Devil storyline was true. This in turn led me to pull out this miniseries from my roommate's long box. And I finally sat down to read the comic series, this comic series, which was coming out as I was leaving. I was pretty much meh on it. Daredevil wasn't in it very much, the covers were gimmicky, it seemed to be paced like a snail. Compare that to the intense art direction and storyline that Mac was putting out with Echo, which was thankfully delayed an awful lot so I could catch up, thanks for that, and in an odd way, Man Without Fear ended up being a sentry at my exit and my re-entrance to comics, which was a weird revelation. However, 2000 was 14 years ago, and times and tastes change. So what do we have in store for Man Without Fear number 5 in the series as a whole? Let's look at the issue beginning with the cover. The cover once again uses the white background, but it is a bit inversed as the copy and the foil image of Daredevil rests primarily in the black portion, with the foreground image of Daredevil in his yellow costume, eh, standing in the white pillar. The red foil Daredevil is actually really cool because his billy club is in effect, and the pattern with alternating white and black backgrounds looks dynamic. It's not as strong as the cover to issue 3, but it does rank. And John Romita Jr. actually makes the yellow costume look almost cool. Almost. Once again, the writing is from Frank Miller, the pencils are from John Romita Jr., and inks are by Al Williamson, and the colors are by Christy Scheel. Letters are courtesy of Joseph Rosen. The story is simply entitled Man Without Fear Chapter 5, and it picks up right where we left off. With Matt continuing his assault on the guards outside the warehouse, but running into a snag with a creaking board on the dock giving away his surprise attack. Thinking fast, Matt rushes the two sentries on the dock, taking all three of them into the water with a shove. One of the guards drowns quickly as he is weighed down from a bag. The other guard tries to stab Matt with a knife, which Matt turns around on him. 
Before swimming back to the surface, Matt snags the bag off of the first drowned guard and finds that it's full of grenades and explosives, all of which Matt ties to the docks and pulls the pin, and the resulting explosion lets everyone inside the warehouse, including the Kingpin's right-hand man, Larks, and Slaughter's veritable army, know that they are under attack, and they rush out to meet the attacker. And that is our first stopping point. Now, I mentioned that the issue picks up where we left off. I don't know if I can underscore that enough to make it clear. It feels like a page turn in lieu of a story break. Of all the awkward issue wrap-ups, this one is the most noticeable. And of course, I'll have a segment toward the end of the episode to address the story as a whole, flowing, single piece. But, let me address the big sticking point in that a couple of goons die. One indirectly, the other directly from Matt's actions. Superheroes killing has been a topic of shall we be kind and call it heated debate in the last year or so. Should superheroes kill? Shouldn't they kill? All of this came to a boil last summer when Man of Steel broached that topic in theaters. One of the defenses of that movie was that Superman had killed Zod in the Richard Donner directed Superman 2. Another was the idea that in the 1989 Batman movie and Batman Returns, we saw the Dark Knight rack up a body count. And more to the point, let's not forget the line, the light at the end of the tunnel isn't heaven, it's the sea train from Daredevil's theatrical release. There are heroes for whom killing is a main tactic, a, a gimmick in some cases. Look at the Punisher, look at Deadpool. There are others who developed a solemn vow to never take a life and they live by that code. But if Batman keeps letting the Joker live time and time again, does that make him an accomplice to whomever the Clown Prince of Crime kills next? There is no easy answer to this question, and it's solely on a case-by-case -case basis, but let me offer this bit to think on. How much does presentation count? In Superman 2, the music rises as Superman reveals that he has powers, and we don't see the pit that Zod is thrown into. In the 1989 Batman, the Batmobile charges into Axis Chemical, shooting through doors, passing a hail of bullets before coming to a quiet stop and dropping a metal ball on the ground. Then, boom. However, in Daredevil, Kazada, the character, not the editor, gets thrown on the tracks by trying to shoot Daredevil in the head and getting hit by a defensive blow. In the end, and a lot like Batman Begins, Kazada ends up on the subway tracks because of his own actions. It's not quite as blatant as, say, the Green Goblin running his own glider into himself, but it's still the result of the actions that they took, which is kind of the case here. All Matt did was shove the two goons into the water, had the one who drowns not carried explosives into the water or let the bag go, he could have conceivably gotten back to the water's surface. Meanwhile, his buddy is trying to stab Matt, and in an act of self-defense, a pretty blatant act of self-defense, Matt stabs the guy with his own knife. It's a defense maneuver, and had these two taken slightly different actions and actually saved themselves, they may still be breathing. I'm not excusing the deaths but I am saying that they were the results of people who signed on to crime knowingly and reaped what they sowed. As far as the killing debate and Daredevil as a whole, we're definitely going to be addressing this a little bit more down the line. It's a very big focal point in Frank Miller's run. My initial stance, my shoot-from-the-hip stance, is that Daredevil is a hero who really can't afford to take the full-on no-killing vow. He's street-level. He's very human in terms of how he can be hurt or killed. I put Matt's position on killing more in line with the idea that if his back is against the wall and there's an innocent life in danger, there's no other way he will do what he has to do. He will not enjoy it. He'll see it as a failure and it will haunt him. 
but he will know that it was the right thing in the end, and he would seek out every other mean to keep it from happening. Here, there was no choice. The first man drowns while Matt is wrestling with Knife Boy and in self-defense, and with limited time and no options, Matt turns the man's knife back on him. Thankfully, for our purposes, this particular instance is pretty cut and dry. And with all of his stealth up to this point, Matt decides to make his presence known. Now, at first, I could not wrap my mind around this decision. I mean, he'd worked so hard to use stealth to use his brains, and then he sends this big, loud message saying, Hey, bad guys, I'm here. And then I had this sort of, I could have had a V8 moment. It's, it's pretty obvious. By drawing the Kingpin's army out, Matt controls the situation rather than the other way around, which would have been the case if Matt had charged in. In the rush the building scenario, Matt is entering into an unknown area with who knows how many people gunning for him. Now he has them disoriented and not knowing what to expect, or who or how many, at that. So now these people are going like a lamb to the slaughter and Matt uses stealth and well-placed blows to pile up the beaten bad guys. It is the opposite of what happened with the prostitute. Instead of diving in, Matt controls the scenario and creates the terms of the battle, learning from his mistake, which... Well, it says a lot about his character arc, doesn't it? I mentioned that Matt was taking the stick role with Mickey, becoming the teacher rather than the student. It's kind of an Obi-Wan Kenobi scenario where the teacher becomes the master. This is also, though in a more peripheral way, a bit like Matt taking on a more realized Jack Murdoch role. He's a father figure of sorts, and he's finally hit a high level of maturity in both his thought process and his planning and his physical prowess. Matt has found a way and a reason to balance that, and he's channeling all of that churning rage at his childhood tormentors and shooting that back at these bullies, and they suffer the brutal consequences. We basically get five full pages of Matt totally decimating this legion of badass, hardcore, hardened criminals. They have guns galore and surely things like knives, chains, the works. And Matt, in no uncertain terms, is owning them. It would be more brutal, but because of the amount of blunt force trauma on the page, the blood is colored pink. Purplish pink. I mean, pink? Really? See, when I saw that, I, I started a long search to see if this series was a code-approved comic. I checked the cover on reprints of the book. I tried to look up images from the web. Nothing there about being a comics code. And... You know, the, the series was a direct market only. It was on cardstock covers. It was square bound, which means it probably never hit a regular spinner rack or newsstand because a lot of those were on their way out. So why was the blood pink? The blood has been presented in a more realistic t red tone so far. In fact, when Elektra has her little alleyway killing rampage in issue three, there is red blood. Elektra is even drawing blood on the cover of issue three. Yet here on this page and this set of pages only, pink blood. There has to be some artistic reason for this, but I don't see it. it. It actually took me out of the story, but I don't want to dwell on that, so let's take a look at the rest of the story. Once Matt is through trashing the army, Slaughter himself and one crony try to get away. Along the way, they try to run Matt down with a car, shooting a machine gun at him. It seems Matt missed that one car inside the stronghold. However, as we saw last issue, Matt disarmed all of the other cars on the property, which vexes Larks as he tries to get away with Mickey. Matt begins to pursue Larks and Mickey, but runs into a bigger problem. The police. They cuff Matt and they take him into custody, putting him in the back of a squad car. And Matt goes crazy because he can hear Mickey screaming for him. So Matt breaks the rules. He slides his cuffs around 
and he kicks down the screen that separate the prisoner area and the drivers and the squad car crashes. Matt uses the cop's keys to get out of the cuffs and then takes their car as simultaneously Larks shoots and kills a cab driver, taking Mickey away in the stolen cab. They don't get far before Matt crashes the squad car into Lark's getaway vehicle, leading to a tense standoff. Larks, with Mickey in hand and a gun in the other, tells Matt to back off. Matt simply says, I don't want to kill you. Let her go. Larks takes a shot with the gun, and Matt blocks it with the billy club. I don't want to kill you. Let her go, he repeats. And Larks demands to know who this mystery man is, and Matt says, Call me Daredevil. Larks takes another shot, which Matt deflects once again with the billy club, which sends the billy club splintering. Unfortunately, the bullet is deflected back into Larks' head, killing him. And with the danger over, by the time the cops find Larks' body, there is already an urban legend forming of a man in a mask calling himself Daredevil. And as the book winds down, Matt realizes his destiny and quits his job in Boston to stay in Hell's Kitchen. He and Foggy decide to start their own firm and help people and they discuss whose name will appear first on the door at a local diner. Foggy flips a coin to decide, and it bounces down the bar where a thin, wiry hand catches it. Stick rises, and as he leaves, he drops the coin in Matt's hand. He tells Matt to watch his back, and the coin came up for Foggy's name to go first, so don't get cocky. And the final scene shows Matt adopting the name Daredevil and leaping into the air in the familiar red costume, and so closes Man Without Fear. So let me begin with Matt busting out of the police car as it's kind of the defining moment. With Mickey's life at stake, Matt has to act on instinct a bit. He can't go by the rules. He can't do what he did when Electra set him up in Central Park. He sees the greater good and he sees the realm that Daredevil will occupy. There are places that cops can't go. Places where the law won't tread and, though these officers don't seem to be, the police force will come under the ownership of the kingpin. Matt has his focus just like the time with Stick and the bow and arrow. There's a target, and Matt must hit it. And by the time he is standing face to face with Larks and the separation between Matt, Murdock, and Daredevil, it's complete. The mask is what does it. When the cops caught Matt in issue 2, he was unmasked. He was vulnerable. The mask allows him to be invincible. They can't hurt Matt Murdock when the mask is on since it isn't really him, in a way. Matt is fully realizing and using the loophole and the middle finger. The shield of justice is in the mask, and the sword is a billy club. Of course, the great irony created by me in my choice of words is that Matt uses the billy club to deflect Lark's shots. Matt doesn't take the offensive because he doesn't have to. He's in control, and he's adapting. He can't let Mickey be a casualty of his carelessness, so his stance is a hard one, and he doesn't dive in. He once again sets up his own scenario where he is in control. Even better, being a lawyer, he lays out the case to Larks. Let the girl go, or you're going to die. There's a negotiation, and Larks makes a choice. Does Matt kill Larks? No. Larks shoots at Matt. Matt defends himself by blocking the shot, and that shot inevitably hits Larks. Larks dies from a bullet that he himself fired. This is not even a flimsy argument. It is what it is. The bad guy reaped the seeds that he sowed. Larks was a killing machine, and in the end, he killed himself. And let's be really honest here, and I hate to say this so bluntly, but in the case of Larks, it's no great loss. We never really know much about where Mickey went, but we know where Matt goes. He grows a pair, he sees everything that he can be, no pun intended, and how 
he can keep his promise to Jack and still make a difference. Matt Murdock has come home and Stick is still there. I don't have much to say on the appearance of Stick other than to say that clearly his sensei approves of Matt's course. When you think about it, the two haven't spoken since Matt's incident with the prostitute that would one day become Typhoid Mary. Matt has found a redemption for her, for him, for Jack, even for the city itself, Hell's Kitchen at least, as well as finding redemption against these bullies. Because Matt's going to make sure that bullies on a criminal scale are held in check. It's a moment of full circle. And in the end, this becomes a love story on a whole different level. It's a love story between a man and the city, especially the neighborhood that birthed him. And it ends exactly where and how it should, and we knew that it would, with Matt swinging in his red duds. But the final two-page image in which Daredevil actually arrives shows a progression that I love. Because we begin with the single D, yellow costume, and then to a more Bronze Age red, and finally, a fully realized gritty and grainy John Romita Jr. Daredevil. You darn near hear the music rising and the audience rises, satisfied, or do they? Here's another train of thought. When I went back through the miniseries as a whole, I was also armed with the knowledge that this was A, originally a treatment for a TV movie, and B, where Miller made additions. On top of that, I knew why he made the additions. I knew the rationale behind it, so let's look at it this way. How would the original story play out as a TV movie? Not bad, actually. I'm sure it would have had a minor audience, but I think viewers of the late 80s and early 90s would have probably put it aside as soon as the evening news was on. Not because it was bad, not really based on quality, but because it wasn't time. Exhibit A, Generation X, the telemovie. I know, that script was lopsided at best. The cast was a bit wet behind the ears, the special effects weren't there, but... It had about the same potential as a Daredevil film would, and the audience wasn't there. More? How about Mantis? It never found its audience. And then The Flash, which never found the audience, though that had more to do with the horrible time slots. However, it also had the momentum of airing between the first two Batman movies. I would argue that until Smallville, comic book properties had a hard time finding any footing outside of animation. At least on television, we weren't ready. Then X-Men happened, it opened the door, and found a way to attract both fans and mainstream audiences. Because of that, Smallville came in at just the right time. Because we were preparing for Spider-Man, we had followed X-Men, and the mainstream was starting to check out these comic book properties. So if the Frank Miller treatment, if that script was used to launch the Netflix series, we would be on solid, solid ground. It would set up the story threads and tone of a solid Daredevil series, and the audience would be found now. So, what I'm saying is, the script would have been fine. The movie probably would have been fine. The audience wasn't ready. Not like they are now. So the next big question is, how did this story work as a whole? Removing the abrupt endings, the story still flows awkwardly around Elektra's appearance. As much as that portion of the book would seem organic and make logical sense, it staggers Matt's journey a bit and it impedes the reader's mood when that portion ends. Elektra takes the focus off of Matt, and off of where we are going with him. It feels like an addendum. And yes, the themes are echoed, I know that. Yes, we see Matt's loose grip on control forming, but the scene with the punks in issue 4 also shows us all of that, and in shorter order. 
When Electra arrives, she becomes the focus of the story, which I want to remind everyone is called Man Without Fear. It's fine as its own element, but it throws a wrench in the gears of Matt's story. And once I used my mad fold-in reading order of the issue, in which I jump from Matt taking care of Fuggy's bully to Fisk rising in power, suddenly the story opens wide. I got into and stayed in Matt's headspace, and I saw the walls forming between Matt Murdock and Daredevil. I felt the flow become more and more cohesive, and it all fell into place. I actually understood Matt, and the points that I struggled a bit to make while noting the story were right on the surface, reading it this way. However, was that because I had already notated the story, had already torn it apart a bit? That I cannot say, using full disclosure, I can't say for sure. So with that, I want to come back to a question that I posed on the first episode of covering this miniseries. Does it matter? Does it help? Is this canon? I say yes with some caveats. Stick will be relevant. Kingpin's addition and the way it was presented was logical. The rewritten events of the original Daredevil number one, including the Fixer, are in place, but we have a new coat of paint. Matt still ends up in the logical landing point, and the biggest problem area remains Elektra. Now we're going to be addressing that as we go through the tales of the comic proper. Beyond that, everything is acceptable. Like most origins, the time is malleable. The details are slightly in flux, but it still becomes an acceptable offering of Daredevil's origin. Miller serves the character by not having him in costume, which kind of becomes Miller's shtick a little bit down the road, but it bookends Born Again in a way that doesn't cannibalize the original. And it also allows us to get to know and get to care about Matt. Not the crime fighter in the cool costume, but a kid from Hell's Kitchen who fought against everything that was thrown at him and he came out swinging. You end up rooting for Matt, you want him to win, and when he does, it isn't a clean victory as it was violent and hard-boiled. But damn it, does that work? Is this the greatest Daredevil story ever told? Is this the definitive Daredevil? No. It's good storytelling, but it isn't the be-all and end-all of Daredevil tales. It's worth the price of admission, and it definitely generates a ton of good thinking points. But if I were to give it a grade, and I don't, and this is an official grade, but if I were, it would be about a B-. And a lot of that is carried by John Romita Jr., who carries Miller in a few portions, and conversely, Miller pulls some amazing script text from Ramita's art. He finds nesting areas in the space for character beats. Really, this is two creators enjoying themselves and producing a book filled with passion and a solid homage. In the end, they do Matt Murdock justice, and the story truly does reinvent the origin while leaving the integral parts intact. And Man Without Fear successfully becomes more than the names attached, but because those names know this character, they use all of their knowledge and skill to produce a riveting tale, which is would be great origin or no origin. So in the end, comparing it to when I read it in 2000 when I was meh, now... And I, I owe this to my the change in my sensibilities, I guess. Now, I love this story and would recommend it as a great starting point. And so comes to the end, our coverage of Man Without Fear. Now, here is where I would normally read and respond to emails, but having a busier week in the real world than I expected, I haven't finished compiling all of those, haven't put all the comments and everything in one place yet. That's on me. And I apologize. There are some good emails in there. I'm excited to share that with you. But I will have those ready to go next week. And as always, you can send emails sharing your thoughts to dave at daredevilpodcast.com 
or use the handy-dandy contact form at the show's site, daredevilpodcast.com. But that will bring this round to a close for another week. Next time we jump back in time to see Matt's future. Wow, wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey type of thing. What we're actually doing is jumping back into the pages of the Daredevil series proper to find a mysterious figure setting the harshest killers of the underworld on Daredevil. Get ready to start the next leg of our journey with Daredevil 159, marked for death. Man, I am so excited to cover these stories, but that will be in one week. Until then, justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. Dave's Daredevil Podcast is a Nat World production. The show's archives can be found at daredevilpodcast.com. To subscribe to the show, you can visit iTunes where you can leave a review, which helps the show get noticed. Or there's a handy RSS link at the website to use the podcatcher of your choice. The show is released every Sunday on all formats and emails are welcome. The address is dave at daredevilpodcast.com. While you're at it, why not friend the show on Facebook? It's easily found by searching for Dave's Daredevil Podcast or just Daredevil Podcast if you're into the whole brevity thing. The important note I'd like to make is I don't make any money off of Daredevil or any Marvel property because they are copyrighted characters that are fully owned by Marvel Comics and their parent company, Disney. I just do this to entertain, so any and all music or sound clips are for entertainment purposes only, and the copyright still belongs to the copyright holder. No infringement is intended. So please, don't sue me. It's all in good fun, and it's all for the love of comics and the love of Daredevil. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you next week.